It's very good to be with you. Thank you for the invitation. And thanks to all who are watching and listening this evening. Uh, really, we're here tonight to share the very best news that you have ever heard. And perhaps I'm speaking to many that already know the good news. And to those of us who are already saved, it is always a joyful thing to be able to hear the message of the gospel preached again. I'm not sure whether you like to sing or not, but the Bible is full of songs. Some songs in the Bible are very joyful, some are a bit sad, and some are both. We're going to look at one of those this evening. About, about 3,000 years ago, uh, there was a man who lived about 1,000 years before Christ, and his name was David, and he frequently wrote. Uh, it was more difficult, obviously, back then to find something to write on, but David was able to find something to write on. And he being the youngest son of a man named Jesse, who was the shepherd of his father's sheep, he spent a lot of time out in the, in the fields looking after the sheep. And then later on, he became the sovereign, the king of Israel. But all this time, whether he was a young man or an older man, uh, whether he was a shepherd or a sovereign, he was the songwriter, the sweet psalmist of Israel. We find that definition of him or description of him in 2 Samuel chapter 23. But at the same time, we have to understand that David was a sufferer. David knew what it was to suffer. He was hated many times by different people, sometimes without any cause whatsoever. But sometimes David would write something that was far beyond his own experience, describing or writing about feelings or experiences or happenings that he couldn't understand, that went far beyond his own personal life. And that's the case of what we are going to read together tonight. So if you have a Bible nearby, turn with me to Psalm 22. Psalm 22 in the Old Testament. It's one of many Psalms that David wrote. And it is a Psalm that has to do with the crucifixion. And we want to look tonight at the idea of suffering. Now, I, I know that perhaps it's not the most favorable subject in a certain sense to think about suffering. But it is very needful to think about the suffering because tonight, as I mentioned, David is writing something that goes beyond his own experience and he is thinking about another person. Whether he knew exactly what he was writing or not, I do not know. But we're just going to read some of the psalm, not the whole psalm. Psalm 22, and reading at the beginning, uh, it says to the chief musician upon Ajales Shahar, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Oh, my God, I cry in the daytime, but thou hearest not, and in the night season, and am not silent. But thou art holy, O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. Our fathers trusted in thee. They trusted, and thou didst deliver them. They cried unto thee and were delivered. They trusted in thee and were not confounded. But I, says David, but I am a worm and no man a reproach of men and despised of the people. Now come with me to verse number 11. Verse number 11, Psalm 22, Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me round. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death. For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. 
Again, that part says they pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell or I may count all my bones. They look and stare upon me. They part my raiments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. Now we're going to go down to verse number 26. And the tone of the psalm has changed at this point. And he says, the meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn unto the Lord. And all the kindreds of the nations shall worship before thee. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he is the governor among the nations. All they that be fed upon earth shall uh, eat and worship. All they that go down to the dust shall bow before him and none and none can keep alive his own soul. Listen to that phrase. None can keep alive his own soul. A seed shall serve him. It shall be accounted to the Lord for a generation. They shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born, that he, that is the Lord Jesus, that he hath done this. That's all we're going to read. And we know that God will bless the reading of his precious word. Now, I just have four four points that I want to share with you this evening, and I hope to be able to move through my message, and I hope that you can follow me fine. Uh, the first thing that I want to speak about for a few moments is the cry in the middle or in the midst of all his suffering. There are seven times when the Lord Jesus called out while on the cross, because remember, although these are the words of David that we have read together tonight, they go beyond David's experience, and he is writing about something that he perhaps does not understand. Maybe the Spirit of God was helping him to understand something, but really it wasn't about his own life, despite the fact that he had suffered many times. But when we think about the Lord Jesus, the one who suffered on the cross of Calvary, there are seven times that he called out, that he cried out while he was on the cross. The first thing that he said was, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Now, can you imagine if somebody was crucifying you to have that that tone of voice and to have that desire in your heart and to express that prayer, Father or God, forgive them for they do not know what they are doing. Now, we could ask ourselves the question, uh, they didn't know what they were doing. These were experts. Well, they were experts in crucifying and crucifixion, but they didn't know that they were crucifying the Lord of glory. They did not really understand who this man was that was being crucified on the middle cross. The next thing that the Lord Jesus said was, when he's conversing with one of the thieves beside him, he says, today, verily, I say unto you, today shalt thou be with me in paradise. What a, what a promise that he gave to that man that day, a man who thought he was going to die without any hope. And perhaps there's somebody listening to me this evening, and you perhaps are near the end of your life, whether you understand that or not, and you have no hope for eternity. Well, the Lord Jesus is the one who gives us hope. And he said to that man today, Shalt thou be with me in paradise? And then he was looking down from the cross. And despite all the, all the pain and the anguish that he was going through at that point, he saw his mother. And he said, woman, behold thy son. And he saw the apostle John and he said, behold your mother. But what we're looking at tonight is the fourth cry from the cross. And it is a cry from the darkness. Because there were three hours of light and there were three hours of darkness. And from the darkness, we hear these words, my God my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Or as it says when we read in the New Testament, speaking in uh, Aramaic, the language of the Lord Jesus at that time, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. But the words are these words, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? We'll come back to those words just in a moment. The next thing the Lord Jesus said, when it was now light again, he said, I thirst. 
and they gave him something to wet his tongue. And then he said, tremendous words that we'll look at again, it is finished. And then finally he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And then he died. He was in complete control of his spirit. And when he said those words, he died. So from the darkness of the cross, we consider these words at the beginning of Psalm 22. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? And from the words of my roaring. Really this phrase that we have here, why art thou so far from helping me? Is the phrase, why art thou so far from my salvation? Now I want to tell you this evening that we'll get to this just in a moment again. But really, the only way that you and I could be offered salvation from God is because the Lord Jesus wasn't saved when he was on the cross of Calvary. He was not rescued. He had to stay there and undergo all of this pain, this suffering. Now, remember that the Lord Jesus being brought up in Israel as a Jewish boy, uh, he would have learned to sing songs as well. Now, I don't know if, if there were worldly songs at that particular time or not. I, I kind of doubt that there were any famous people that went around singing like there are today. But the Jewish people, they had a hymn book, and their hymn book was the book of the Psalms. So the Lord Jesus would have been brought up learning the Psalms. Now, now I know that he is God and he knows all things, but he, as a boy, he was brought up and, and he would have gone to the synagogue and heard different Psalms that were sung. So it is not hard to think why these words would come to the mind and the heart of the Lord Jesus when he is on the cross of Calvary. He already knew these words and there he is on the cross and he is suffering and he is suffering like he had never suffered before. And he says, Father, no, he doesn't say that. He says, my God, my God. Why hast thou forsaken me? So these two words that we have here, forsaken and far, help us to understand that he was experiencing a distance that he had never, ever felt before. He cried in the daytime, he says, and he cried in the dark. And he says, there's no answer. There's no response from heaven. Now, remember this, that from all eternity, uh, farther back than our minds can possibly ever go, we can think back maybe a thousand years and and scratch our heads and wonder how it was back then. And we can look at history books and that type of thing. But that was before pictures and, and photographs and that. So we really don't know everything about a thousand years ago. But go back, go back 3,000 years ago when David wrote these words. Go back to eternity. And all throughout eternity, something that our mind cannot fathom, the Son and the Father, God and the Lord Jesus, always had communication. They always had fellowship or communion, if you wish. And then when the Lord Jesus came into this world, he, he lived those 30 and three years. And there was always during all this journey, all through different parts of Israel, in his childhood. And then uh, again, as he was a man going from place to place, it's, he enjoyed this fellowship. You can read through the Gospels and you can see that there were many occasions when the Lord Jesus left everybody else behind. And he would go out to a desert place, to a, a wilderness place, and he would pray. And he always enjoyed God's presence. But here he is now. And he is on the cross. And he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring? Words that really cause us some anguish in our own souls. When we think about a perfect man that always had talked to his father, that always had this communion with God. And now he feels there is this distance. There is this separation, and we'll look at look at why just in a few moments. But I want to think for a few for a few minutes about the the character 
of his suffering. What was his suffering actually like? Now, we just want to stick with what the Bible is telling us here in this particular psalm. And I'm not going to look at every phrase, just as some phrases that we have read from verses 11 down through verse number 18. Now, some of these things, in a certain sense, you and I perhaps have felt up to a certain point. But the Lord Jesus was suffering in a, in a very intense way that you and I on earth have never suffered. Now, if somebody is not saved, there will be eternal suffering. But tonight we want to think about the suffering of the Lord Jesus. So the first thing that I notice is in verse number 11. And, and the character of this verse tells me that there was loneliness. Because it says, be not far from me, for trouble is near, there is none to help. Now, for uh, over three years, the Lord Jesus had had a band of apostles. They were 12. Judas Iscariot obviously was a, uh, not a, a good man, shall we say. But we have a, a band of 12 men that are following the Lord Jesus. They're with him all the time. But now at this particular time, he says in verse number 11, there is none to help. They had disappeared. The Lord Jesus had a number of women that would follow along as well. And they were, they were watching from a distance. But even if they were able to come a little bit closer, like Mary, his mother, obviously did. And John came back later on. We know that, too, from what we have already mentioned about another saying of the Lord Jesus from the cross. There was absolutely no way that anybody could help the Lord Jesus. He was alone. Sometimes we sing hymns that emphasize the fact that the Lord Jesus was all alone on the cross of Calvary. Yes, I know there was one malefactor, one criminal on one side, and another criminal on the other side. We, we know that. But in a certain sense, the Lord Jesus was completely alone when he was on the cross. In verses 12 and 13, we don't see so much the loneliness, but we see the mocking. Now, there are lots of different uh, figures that are used as we go through these verses, and that's not my point this evening at all to look at these in any detail. But just look at verse 13. They gaped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and a roaring lion. They were mocking him. They were taunting the Lord Jesus. Now, perhaps in these days when we hear an awful lot about people being bullied, we, we understand some more of that than maybe some people in an older generation would not have understood. But you and I most likely at some point in our life have been mocked, have been taunted. But think about the Lord Jesus there upon the cross of Calvary. And and. He is the one that had complete power. He was truly divine and truly human. And people were saying to him, if thou art the Christ, come down from the cross, save thyself. And even the, the malefactors, the criminals, they were saying the same thing. One of them obviously repented afterwards, but they were, they were mocking the Lord Jesus. So this is another way that we see uh, something of the suffering of our Savior. Verse 14 speaks to us about bodily weakness. Now, I want to speak with great care because I know, as I've mentioned, that he was truly human and yet truly divine. But these words that David penned speak to us about bodily weakness. And the Lord Jesus, uh, as we go through the hours on the cross, obviously he had gone through trials the night before. And then the morning has come and he is taken outside the city of Jerusalem and they nailed him to that cross. And he's on the cross for six hours. So obviously there is bodily weakness. He says in verse number 14, I am poured out like water. Now, David, perhaps it had some experience like that when he was very tired, when he was coming back from a battle, perhaps. But he, but the Lord Jesus, in a special way, says these words, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. All my bones are out of joint. Now, I don't think that I have ever had that experience of having a bone out of joint. There was a, a young fellow back in Topeka, Mexico, where we used to live 
a number of years ago, and, and quite frequently his shoulder would be out of joint and he would have to go off to the hospital and they would, they would grab his arm and they would shove it back into its place. Finally, he kind of learned how to do it himself, but it looked rather painful when your arm is hanging down completely out of place. But it says of the Lord Jesus, all my bones are out of joint. So there he is hanging on the cross and he can say of himself, all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. So he's speaking about internal sufferings as well. But we come to verse number 15 and we learn something else. Not just the loneliness and the mocking and the bodily weakness, but now we find in verse number 15 something about the thirst. And we've, we've mentioned already that the Lord Jesus said, I thirst from the cross. And this is obvious. People were not compassionate to those that were being crucified in, in any way. They did come along earlier to offer the Lord Jesus something to mitigate the pain, but he refused to take it. But now he has something very important that he is going to say. And so he cries out, first of all, or he says, I thirst. Now look at what it says in verse number 15. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, like a piece of clay. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws that was brought me into the dust of death. My tongue cleaveth to my jaws. Now, I, I live uh, in Hermosillo, Mexico. Um, we're up in Nova Scotia at this present time. We're planning to head back later this month, uh, right now, uh, in Hermosillo, or this morning around 10 o'clock. It was somewhere around 104 degrees, I think, and it was going up from there. And oftentimes it gets up to 106 and 110, and even sometimes up to almost 120. So it's it's a warm place. And, and you can quickly become dehydrated in a desert city like Hermosillo, Sonora, or like Phoenix, Arizona. Well, the Lord Jesus was not in a desert place, but he had been mistreated. He was being crucified. And he says these words, my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And there are many times, every time in the summer when somebody leaves their house in our city, you always leave with some water because it is essential to our health. But come to, come to verse number 16. He says, dogs have compassed me. And then he says at the very end, they pierce my hands and my feet. So we have perforating wounds that are mentioned here in, in this character of the suffering of the Lord Jesus. They pierced my hands and my feet. Now, I, I wonder, maybe when I get to heaven, I'll ask David, what did you think, David, when you wrote these words? They pierced my hands and my feet. Crucifixion had not even yet been invented. But we obviously hear when we read through Psalm 22, we're not reading about a man who is suffering in a, in a normal way, uh, in any shape or form. We're reading about something that goes beyond any normal suffering just because somebody is sick, because it speaks about violence that is being done to the person of the Lord Jesus. Now, just think about the Lord Jesus. Here is a man who, who had never done anything wrong, who had never, he had never said a word that he had to say, I'm sorry, I said that. That was a mistake. Never, never did he uh, commit an error in that way. He couldn't because he was truly God. And yet here he is, and he is hanging upon the cross of Calvary. And men without any sense of compassion whatsoever have taken those nails and have taken a hammer and they have placed the nails in his hands and in his feet and they have lifted that cross up so that others can see this is the way the Romans treat criminals. Now, he wasn't a criminal, but that is the way that Romans treated criminals. So I, again, I ask, what, what was David thinking when he was writing these words? They pierced my hands and my feet. Not a bone of him was broken, so they could put those nails through his hands with so many bones, 26 bones, I think, in each hand, and they put it through, and there was not one bone broken to fulfill the scriptures, but there he was, and he was hanging upon 
the cross of Calvary, perforating wounds. There's much more that the Lord Jesus suffered as well. Look at verse number 17. I may tell, I may count on my bones. They look and stare upon me. Now, not a bone of him was broken, as I mentioned already. But I think that perhaps what we see here in verse number 17 is this shameful exposure. Because there he was. They had stripped him of his garments. And they had placed him on that cross. And, and he's shamefully exposed to all those that are going by. And they're looking at him. As it were, they would have thought another common criminal just to be thrown into the common grave but his bones were counted they were not broken they were practically visible as he hung there on the cross shameful exposure but the next thing that i see in verse number 18 is this callous indifference because it says they part my garments among them they cast lots upon my vesture the lord jesus had one piece of clothing that was uh sewn from the top to the bottom and didn't have a seam an expensive gar garment, shall we say. And, and they didn't want to rip that into pieces and share it between the different soldiers. And so what they did is they, they gambled for his clothing. Now just think about this for a moment. Just pause for a second. And here is a man who is in intense agony, in deep suffering. And he has cried out, Father, forgive them. And yet hours later, uh, there he is still on the cross. And during this time and all this suffering, people are mocking him. They are taunting him. He is shamefully exposed. He has these wounds in his hands and in his feet. He's saying, I thirst. And yet at the same time, we find men that are seated at the foot of the cross. And what they are doing is they are gambling for his clothing. How, how indifferent can man be to the suffering of others? Sadly, we even see some of this in the world in which we live today. There are many that are suffering. And we can become callous. We, we can become indifferent to the suffering of others. But there was a perfect man, a man who had never sinned. And he was suffering. And there they were, gambling for his clothing. We can see other mentions of that in the Old and New Testament as well. But the third thing that I want to think about this evening for a few moments is the cause of his suffering. So we've heard about the cry in the midst of his suffering. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from helping me? So we want to look at the answer. Why? He asked the question why twice in verse number one. And I think that he himself answers his own question. So when you drop your eyes down to verse number three, his answer is this. But thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. That, that's the answer to the question. Thou art holy. Now, the Lord Jesus, obviously, for two reasons. One is because he was uh, divine, is divine. But the other reason is because he had learned the scriptures. Uh, he had gone and listened to people teach. So the Lord Jesus was well aware of stories from the Old Testament. And he would have understood, as we read through these verses here, he would have understood what we see in verse number four. Our fathers trusted in thee, they trusted, and thou didst deliver them. So when we go back to the Old Testament, we see many examples of men and women too, of men and women who trusted in God and God graciously and sometimes miraculously delivered these people. The Lord Jesus would have known the story, for example, of three men that were thrown into a furnace of fire. And in this fiery furnace, there was a fourth man that appeared in the fire and he saved them from certain death. So when the Lord Jesus says in verse number five, they cried unto thee and were delivered. 
there are many cases. Daniel himself, he was thrown into the, the lion's den. And, and there he was. The king, Darius, was completely upset about it and couldn't sleep that night. And in the morning he comes and he asks the question, could your God deliver you? And, and Daniel said, yes, he could. And, and he did. So the Lord, there, there are other examples as well. I'll leave it at that. But it says here, our fathers trusted. They cried. They were delivered. They trusted. They were not confounded. But he says, here am I. And I am in the midst of this intense suffering. And there is no deliverance for me. There is no salvation for me. There is nobody coming to take me down from this cross. There is nobody who can come along and say, I am going to alleviate your suffering. It is going to come to an end at this particular moment. There was none of that. So the question is, why? Why? Why was he forsaken? Now, remember again what we've already mentioned, that the Lord Jesus had enjoyed full fellowship, full communion, happy communication with his father, with God, all throughout his life, 33 years, and all throughout eternity before he came into this world. But now he answers the question because he understood the, the reason, the cause for his suffering. And what is it? God, who is just and holy, was treating or was dealing with the question of sin while the Lord Jesus was on the cross. Now, remember this. The Lord Jesus did not have any sin. The Bible tells us very clearly, or there are different apostles that write words like this. He did no sin. He knew no sin. Knew no sin. In him is no sin. Uh, apart or separate from sin. So we find those words that describe the, the perfection of the Lord Jesus. Completely separated from sin. He himself was holy. He never sinned. He could not sin. So what do we have when we come to this particular section? And it says, but thou art holy. Verse number four. Verse number three. Sorry, thou art holy. O thou that inhabitest the praises of Israel. God was dealing with the question of sin, with the issue of sin. We, we ask ourselves, the, the sin, uh, whose sin? Perhaps a better question to start with is, what is sin? Sin, according to John, as he writes his epistle, is lawlessness. It's when we break the law of God. And perhaps you'll say, well, I don't know all the laws of God, and maybe, maybe we can't name every single law of God by memory. But you can go back to the book of Exodus, chapter number 20, and you can find what are commonly known as the Ten Commandments. And amongst those many commandments are the ones to not take the Lord's name in vain and not to lie. I'm just dealing with just looking at two. So the Lord Jesus was one who never took God's name in vain, and he was one who never, ever lied. But what about you and I? If we are honest with ourselves, and more importantly, if we're honest with God, we, we understand that we have lied. That we have had moments in our life when we have perhaps taken the name of God in vain. And perhaps I'm speaking to some Christian's child tonight. And you will say, well, that, that was never the case in my life. And that's, that's very good. Well, I'll just go to another one. Honor thy father and thy mother. And uh, even if you were brought up in a Christian home and your parents are believers, there are surely moments in your life when you remember that you were not the most honoring to your parents, that there was some obedience, uh, lack of obedience, some disobedience in your heart and perhaps in your actions as well. And there was some anger that arose, perhaps. And you didn't always, you haven't always honored your father and your mother. But the Lord Jesus, he was never that way. He was perfect. He did not have perfect parents, but he was perfect. And yet he honored his father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary. So, Again, we come back to the question, what is the cause of his suffering? It wasn't his sin because he had no sin. 
He did no sin. There was no sin in him. He knew no sin. Completely sinless, completely perfect, never sinned, never could sin. So we have to make that clear. That is the only way that he was able to deal with the question of our sin. And the Bible says in Romans chapter number three that there is no difference for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So God has set a certain standard and you and I are completely unable and probably unwilling to keep or to try to keep the standard that God has set. And so we who have fallen short of God's standard of God's glory, we need a savior. And that is why God sent his son. God sent the son to be the savior of the world. That's why he came into this world. And it wasn't enough that he would walk amongst man and that he would be a perfect example of how we ought to live, although we can't. And it wasn't enough that he would do many miracles. And he did many miracles. He, he gave the blind their sight and he healed some leprous people. And there were many other things that he did. He, he raised a few from the dead as well. So the Lord Jesus did all these marvelous works that, that proved he was the son of God. But those were not enough either. They, they affected the life of, of an individual, maybe of a family, but they didn't bring salvation. The only way that the Lord Jesus could bring salvation and offer it to you and to me as guilty sinners that we are was to be forsaken. To feel this separation because of our sin. Now, I'm going to quote a verse to you that Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. And he's speaking about God. And he says, for he, God, hath made him, the Lord Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So again, it says, for he, that's God, has made him, the Lord Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. The Lord Jesus knew no sin, that we, as sinners, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So the Lord Jesus, when he says, my God, my God, why? Hast thou forsaken me? Why art thou so far from my salvation? He understood. God is dealing with me. God is dealing with me due to the sin of the people, the sin of the nations. And because God took our sin and laid it on the Lord Jesus, we can have salvation. So I want to finish my message this evening thinking about the consequences of his suffering. What are the results of his suffering? There, there sometimes seems to be suffering without any reason. But there, there is a reason for the suffering of the Lord Jesus. Look at verse number 26. The meek shall eat and be satisfied. They shall praise the Lord that seek him. Your heart shall live forever. Now, he is saying there is a way to be satisfied. The world is looking for satisfaction. The world perhaps doesn't know that what they're really looking for is salvation. But we find salvation in the Lord Jesus. The meek shall eat. What are we going to eat? Well, don't, don't get terribly offended when I quote these words of the Lord Jesus. He wasn't speaking uh, about something we have to do materially, but metaphorically. He said in John 6, 54, Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood. So he's saying the person who understands the reason for my death is to give life to a guilty sinner the person that appropriates that for themselves, that accepts that for their own, this person, he says, the Lord Jesus says, has eternal life. So there is salvation. There is satisfaction in the Lord Jesus. Then he says in verse 27, all the ends of the world. And then he says, all the kindreds of the nations. Thankfully tonight, we are preaching a gospel 
that is sufficient for everybody, no matter where they live, no matter where they were born. There, there is no distinction with God. God is willing and able to save everybody because what the Lord Jesus did is sufficient provision, sufficient salvation for every single sinner that wants to be saved. God will not save you if you do not want to be saved, but he is willing and able to save you if you come to the Lord Jesus. A phrase that I was looking at this evening or this afternoon is the last phrase in verse number 29. It says, none can keep alive his own soul. You can, you can take vitamins and you can take minerals and you can take pills and you can do all, all you want to do. You can exercise every single day. All those things might, might help you live a healthy life, which is good, but there is nobody that can keep alive his own soul. The Lord Jesus came to give us life and to give us life in abundance, abundant life. But in order to do that, he had to die and he was willing to do that. That's why he came. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. But look at verse number 31. And with this, we will finish up this evening. He says, they shall come and shall declare his righteousness unto a people that shall be born. David's writing about a people that shall be born. People that weren't living in his time. That includes you and me. And it says that he hath done this. What does this phrase mean that he hath done this? If we were to take the time this evening and, and look at different languages, you would see that the, this phrase is exactly the same word that we find in John 19 and verse number 30. These words I've already quoted. They were words of the Lord Jesus from the cross when he said, it is finished. So what we have at the end of Psalm 22, he hath done this. And what the Lord Jesus said in John 19, 30, when he was almost at the point of turning his spirit over to God, to his father, he said, it is is finished. David wrote, he hath done this. David wrote prophetically, the Lord Jesus was speaking about something that was done now, but you and I tonight can enjoy full salvation, a free salvation, because the Lord Jesus said, it is finished. God, God was, and God is completely satisfied with the work of salvation that his son accomplished on the cross of Calvary. There is nothing left to do. As a guilty sinner, we can come to God. 39 years ago, in the month of July, I came to know the Lord Jesus as my Savior. I understood that this is a faithful saying. This is worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. I understood that when the Lord Jesus said, it is finished, that meant that there was nothing for me to do, nothing for me to add, nothing for me to offer. He saved me from my sins. And tonight we want to tell you that there is salvation for you because the Lord Jesus was forsaken. There is salvation offered full and free. And our desire, our prayer is that you tonight will heed the warning and you will accept the invitation and come to the Lord Jesus.